before Dr. Mills comes and shares with us, we're going to have a greeting from our uh, missionary that we work with in Benin, West Africa, uh, Mark Ejigbaru. Uh, Mark was introduced to us by our Southern Baptist missionaries, Jeff and Barbara Singerman, and uh, we're going to watch a video here in just a moment. And it'll give you a feel for some of the things that Mark has been involved in and uh, Beach Haven and other churches have been involved in. Uh, Beach Haven has had an opportunity to be engaged in, in a couple of long-term mission partnerships. Uh, we're in the front end of a relationship such as Guatemala, that with Guatemala. Uh, we've done that in Mexico for almost 20 years or, or at 20 years. And then we were in Benin active engagement there for five or more years there, and, and there are still things that are, are happening in Benin that Mark will share uh, in just a moment about. But before, before he greets us, uh, let's take a look at this video. It's about three minutes long, this video. We've met many people that uh, claim that there's a freedom in Christianity that they couldn't get in Voodoo. Benin is known as the birthplace of the of Voodoo. Today, Voodoo is still with the people, still alive. They believe that they can get in touch with the God through the idols, and they do sacrifices to idols, uh, chicken, goats, it depends on what the, the voodoo priest uh, requires. And uh, when you disobey to the voodoo, you can, you'll be cursed. So people are afraid to be cursed. They're afraid that the voodoo priest will do any evil to them. They're afraid that they will die if they don't respect all the principles of the voodoo. Many people, many people have come to know Jesus. People have stopped us alongside the road and begged us to come and plant a church in the village. The strategy we use is uh, first research on the people groups, recruit a church planter among those people groups, a church planter that speaks the language of that people groups. We train him uh, how to do the evangelism and how to plant the churches and multiply churches. Uh, we have about uh, 52 languages. When we tell them stories uh, from the Bible in the language, they find themselves in it. You know, they find themselves living in that story, and it was really attractive people. My name is Koba Philippe. I'm a church planter. I have a passion that to reach out to souls. doing this ministry more than 10 years now uh, and uh, it's been successful. We have uh, up to seven people groups uh, we are working with now. Uh, pray that God will open the hearts of these local people so we can raise the first leaders that we will train to go and continue multiplying the churches. Thank you, John. 
Thank you, church. On behalf of all the people in Benin, the Mahi people, the Chi people, all the people groups we've been working with, I want to say thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. The model of training local leaders and send them out to their own people group so they can multiply churches started here with the beach heaven. We started <laughs> with all the team. Now we are replicating that same model with the seven people group. Many uh, church leaders has been trained. Many more will be trained and many more will be sent and more and more churches will be planted. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Let me invite your attention to Isaiah 62, and more than 30 churches have been started among the Mahi people and more than 30 among the Shi since 2009. Uh, they've got between 60 and 70 churches that they've started since that time, and uh, all of that got ignited by uh, the partnership uh, that our friends in Benin had with uh, Beach Haven. Uh, we've got a great vision for Western Guatemala and the, the globe. And uh, we'll be unfolding that at the appropriate time as, uh, as the days go by. Isaiah chapter 62 uh, reminds me of a uh, young man who was interested in learning how to send smoke signals. And he lived out west, and uh, he had a, uh, a friend teach him that was very well aware of how to send smoke signals. What they didn't know is that an atomic bomb was going to be detonated some miles in the distance. And it went off, and they saw it. And the young man said, well, they didn't have to be so loud about it. That's how I feel when I read Isaiah, and especially Isaiah 62. There's some big, bold, loud words uh, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and they're big, bold, loud words about our words. Um, when it comes to speaking, Isaiah 58.1, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Well, that's not... Uh, a mild thing, that's not a casual thing, lifted up like a trumpet, like a shofar trumpet, a trumpet that uh, the Hebrews would use. And then when it comes to our words to God, uh, verse number 7 of Isaiah 62 has got something real powerful uh, to say, but uh, I'm really encouraged also by um, Isaiah 45:11. He said, as for the works of my hands, watch this, as, the as for the works of my hands, you command me. Well, all along, God has been commanding his people, and now God invites them to ask him to work in prayer, and he states it, now you command me. Now, God's not encouraging us to take the role of Lord and Master and to uh, uh, become a substitute for his sovereignty. Oh, no, but he is going a long ways at making a point that he wants us to be bold and energetic in prayer before him. Uh, and that was Isaiah 45, 11. Well, those kinds of words are what we find in Isaiah chapter 62. Uh, the Jews expected the Messiah to fulfill this and to do this. And the context is, is that Israel was going to be judged for its sins. But God is promising a restoration and the terms that God uses here in this text are marvelous and delicious. There, there's really, I don't know if there's a better way to put it than to, than to say that. 
That's what God is teaching his people in Isaiah 62. And I want you to begin reading with me in verse number 1. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. You also, you shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate. And if you want to sing something by Squire Parsons, the next phrase is uh, the time to begin. You shall not be called Hephzibah and your land, or you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and you shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I've set a watchman on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. And give him no rest until he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. A couple of things here. And the primary thing that drives this is give them no rest. Well, who are we not to give rest to? Well, first, uh, give the people no rest from your witness. And that's what chapter 62, verse 1 and verse number uh, 6 pick up on and everything in between. uh, Those two texts. Now, the thing that Isaiah has been complaining about since chapter 56, verse 10, is that Israel's prophets were not declaring the truth. They were not declaring the hard things, so they could not have access to the good things and the promises that God was to bring. And back in Isaiah 56, uh, verse 10, Isaiah even said that these false prophets all over Israel were dumb dogs who could not bark. Dumb dogs. Who could not bark. I'm enjoying that so much I'm going to say it again. They were dumb dogs who could not bark. Well, what good is a dumb dog who cannot bark? There's hardly any good a dumb dog can have. I'd be suspicious about even eating the thing. A dumb dog who cannot bark. And that's what the prophets were in Israel. Isaiah says, however, I'm going to be like verse 1 and I'm going to be like verse 6 because of verses 2 through 5. Verse 1, I'll not hold my peace, I will not rest. And in verse 6, I'll not hold my peace day or night, and I will not keep silent because I mention the Lord. Well, why is that? Well, God has promised a great transition in Israel, which he ignited when Jesus came, by the way. But he's promised a great transition in Israel. Primarily, they would become known and have a different public public reputation than what they had had heretofore. In their sin, they were the vile and the scum of the earth. And then God judged them. But he said, there are going to be some transitions you're going to go through in your public reputation, which will match the reality of your soul. And there are at least three of them. In verse number 3, You shall be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of God. You're going to go from shame to a crown. People are no longer going to think of you as shame. They're going to think of you as a crown. 
So every degraded person you and I know, God can transition from being a shame into a crown. Every person that has marks on their face from the use of crystal meth and other illicit drugs can go from being a shame to a crown. Every gutter bum drowning in his vomit any place in the city or the county can go from being a shame to a crown. Any individual that has engaged in behavior that's breaking up his or her marriage and tearing up the family can go from being a shame to a crown. God can do it. God promises it. And he says, do not be silent. You've got good news to tell the world. That's what he can do. Well, that's not all. We're just getting started. Look at verse number four and five. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate, abandoned, forsaken. There's, there's uh, nothing productive there. There's no uh, attachment. There's no loyalty there. But you shall be called Hephzibah. Now, I've been to some forsaken, desolate places in Israel. My goodness, I thought West Texas was ugly. My soul. There are places in Israel that uh, are outside of Israeli control that are pretty desolate. And it's rather sad. Jericho is one of them. And I won't go into too much detail because it's hard for you to imagine if you've not been there. But uh, there, there are some desolate places there. But here's what God says. Instead of being desolate, I'm going to call you Hephzibah. Have you ever known of a church named the Hephzibah Church? I've known many churches called Hephzibah Baptist Church, for example. Do you know what it means? It means, I delight in her. And that's how he defines it in the next verse. I'm going to delight in her. Instead of being forsaken and desolate, you're going to be a delight to me. You're going to bring joy to me. You've broken my heart for centuries since uh, Rehoboam broke and uh, divided the kingdom. You, you've broken my heart. You hadn't listened to my prophets. You've killed a bunch of them. You've mocked them and scorned them and imprisoned them. You have uh, mixed the true faith of Israel with Baal worship and Astra and Molech and, uh, and Chemoshes. Uh, that, that's what you've done. You, you've broken my heart, but there's coming a day I'm going to transform you so much, you're going to be a delight to me. And then he says, not only that, but you're going to be Beulah. You're going to be married. You're going to be married. Now, God had some harsh terms for Israel in these days. And fidelity was not one of them. Loyalty, covenant love, faithfulness. There's some old King James words that are really, really harsh that we don't even say anymore for what Israel became. Uh, and, uh, the, the, uh, and the, the lightest of those words that we use today is adulterous. And there's some other harsh words that could go with that that uh, the King James Version would use and communicate. Those may be more appropriate because they're just so much more harsh and they really communicate a lot more motion. But what we find here is God says, my transformation in your life is going to take you from being that and you're going to be wed and married to me. That's how I'm going to embrace you. That's how lovely you're going to be. You're going to be delightful. You're going to be attractive. You're going to make my heart skip a beat. I'm going to be crazy, silly, mad in love with you. I am going to marry you, Israel. And in verse 5, he says it and uses a comparison. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's the second transition. But then there's a third transition. 
Israel was vulnerable, but look what happens in verse number six. I've set a watchman on your walls. A watchman, of course, was usually a city employee who would work and keep watch from one of the city towers that uh, was in the city walls, and they would look for for um, bandits, they would look for invading armies and others that might be a threat to the city, and then they would warn the city. God says, you're going to go from being vulnerable to being watched and cared for and protected. Hey, by the way, did you know what you can do? If you'll plead with God, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, you can pray a wall and a hedge of protection around your kids. Satan complained about that with Job. Well, you need to be doing that with every one of your kids. I want to tell you what, uh, the kind of mindset many of us have now was adequate for the 80s and 90s, but folks, in the 21st century, all hell's broken loose. I think that just about the entire nation and certainly nearly all the centers of power and almost every square inch of the non-Christian world is demonized. And I'm not given to exaggeration just for effect. I, I think you know me well enough to know that. Oh my goodness, things broke loose and they picked up steam in 2008 when the president was elected. They got worse in 2012 when he came out in favor of gay marriage. It has, it has unleashed hordes of demonic influence. So listen, we're not in the 80s and 90s anymore. We are not. We are in a demonized 21st century. We better be on our faces before God for our kids, pleading with God multiple times a day that he would look after these kids. There's no place that's safe. Oh, there's no place that's safe at all. Well, what he says here is, I'm putting up a watchman, and I'm going to look after you. I'm going to protect you. Despite the demonization of the 21st century, God is greater than it all, and you can have victory. Well, this is the good news that's found here in these verses. No wonder he says verse 1, and no wonder he says verse 6. In other words, the world is not going to get any rest from our words and our witness. Hey, we've got Merry Christmas Athens coming up. Come up with a way. Come up with a way to drop Jesus into a conversation. Last year, uh, Michelle and I were assigned, and I don't know who did this, but uh, we were assigned to clean restrooms and businesses along the Atlanta Highway, outside the uh, perimeter, okay? And uh, we did. And I appreciated the opportunity to stop cleaning and talk to the store manager at Babcock. <laughs> I did appreciate that for lots of reasons. like to be with people on one hand, and I was ready for a break. But uh, what I uh, said to him and some of the others that we met during that time is, uh, they, they would usually say, thank you, we really appreciate you being here. And I would say something like, well, you know, uh, I, I really believe Jesus has served us so well, and it's the least we can do. Drop Jesus in the conversation. And by doing that, you end up testing the waters to see if there's an open door there and share with them. And then, not only that, but uh, you end up leaving the powerful name of Christ there in that place. And God blesses the name and the mention of the name Jesus. So when we do Merry Christmas Athens, have a way to drop Jesus in the conversation. And if we can help you with that, let us know. But people get no rest from our words, our witness. But there's a second thing. Uh, not only that, but look at verse number 7. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. 
Well, if the first six verses are, don't give people any rest from the good news, what is verse 7 about? Who doesn't get any rest there? The New King James Version does a very good thing which annoys uh, those who keep up with changes in modern English. I still believe in the divine capitalization of the pronouns. I do. I think it's appropriate. I think it's right. And I still like the Oxford comma. Thank you very much. I'm a geek. I minored in English, okay? But I don't like changes in the English language. Just leave it like it is. What those changes do is that they end up uh, separating us over the years from previous English works. And they become more difficult to read. And sometimes I wonder if that's what some are attempting to do. But anyway, uh, my more suspicious days, that's what I wonder. But in any case, um, uh, what uh, in the New King James Version, what is capitalized in verse number 7? Him. The, the second thing to do is this. Give God no rest from your prayers. That's what he says right here. God says, give me no rest. Now, you can't wear God out. And so this is really a humanization of uh, the being of God. We, there's a long $400 college word uh, that uh, we could use for that. But uh, oftentimes the scripture will uh, take the being of God and, and to make a meaning clear, it will humanize God in some ways. It's called an anthropomorphism. And uh, that, that's what is taking place here. You really can't wear out God. But God says, give me no rest from your prayers. Do not do that at all. Back in chapter 45, verse 11, he said, As for the works of my hands, you command me. And then chapter 65, verse 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. There are these large promises, these large beckonings, these large encouragements in Isaiah, just in this one book, about your prayers. Give God no rest until when? Look here, the most unlikely thing in the world. Do not give God any rest until he accomplishes the most unlikely thing in the world. And that is, he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now, um, you may think, well, that's not applicable to me. I'm not in Jerusalem. Well, you have to understand, uh, when the church was born, and any time a Gentile comes to Christ, we are grafted into Israel. In 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20, all the promises of God to Israel are yes and amen to Jesus, uh, in Jesus Christ. So all the promises given to Israel are transferred and extended not only to Israel, but to all of those who know Jesus Christ. And so they are yes and amen by God's own testimony to every Gentile believer. Uh, Ephesians 3, 6 that we covered a few weeks ago. We are fellow heirs fellow members of the body, and we are fellow partakers of the promise of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And so all the promises that are found in the Old Testament are applicable to 21st century Gentile Christians. And so um, I, I don't believe in replacement theology where the church completely replaces Israel. I believe in Bible theology. Romans 9 through 11, the church was grafted into Israel. So I believe in grafted theology. So you could read verse number 7, give him no rest until he makes the church the praise of the earth. We're attached to Israel. We can too be a praise in the earth. And have you ever known a day 
when the church was less like a praise today. Even the churches that deserve to be a praise. God can so transform, through our prayers, God can so transform the sentiment, the mindset, the faith, the value, the soul, the heart of the world that they begin to praise churches instead of denigrate them. Let me ask you, does anybody in the media or Hollywood or Washington annoy you? <laughs> it's like asking if it gets cold in winter, right? Why don't you pray for them? Plead with God that that would happen. Hey, I've got some good news, by the way. Some of you saw a prayer request the other day for Jennifer A. Dolphson's aunt that she would turn to Christ. And she had some theological problems that were serious hindrances to coming to Christ. Well, her son the other day led her to Jesus. She opened up her heart and life to Christ. There on the bed with her spinal cord severed, very little time to go on. She's not going to be, you know, unless God supernaturally intervenes, she's not going to be healed. And she opened up her heart to Jesus Christ. And the gospel presentation was hard. And it was clear and it was explicit. You've got to get rid of all this other theological garbage and embrace Jesus Christ alone. Do you want to do that? And she did the only physical movement she could do that indicated yes. And she blinked her eyes and she turned to Jesus. God can do that. And she's been a worrisome woman through the years. But you know what? She's got peace. She has experienced a transformation. And so, some prayers were answered. That's what God will do. Give God no rest until He makes us the praise of all the earth. Those who are most used by God are precisely those who will bombard heaven with prayer, who will give a sigh, a whimper, who will give out a request, who will allow their heart to break before God. There is nothing that you could ever cry out to God with and give to Him that God will not hear. People, dear sweet people, He slaughtered His Son to get you next to Him. Give Him no rest until He takes you and your church, your marriage, and your family and every area of reality and transforms it into something that is the praise of all the earth. God can do it. So let me ask you, is there anything about which you're urgent tonight? Is there anything about which you are eager this evening? Is there anything about which you are desperate for God to do this evening? Anything at all? Have you taken it to God? You know, I had to admit recently, that I hadn't taken something to God. And, and you know what's worse? I told all of you people to do so yourself. I did. I told everybody to take it before and lay it all before God. And I just assumed I knew what the Lord wanted. And it kept bothering me. It kept bothering me. It kept bothering me. I kept getting questions about it. I kept getting questions and questions. I'm not going to tell you what it is, maybe one day later. But it kept coming, and it kept coming, and it finally occurred to me, as embarrassing as it is, I had not surrendered that to God. And I've told everyone else to surrender it to God. 
So you know what I did? I surrendered it to God, and it got off my heart, and I've had complete peace since. And when the moment I did that, answers started coming and piling up one on top of the other. Remarkable. Just remarkable. Hey, is there something that you need to give to God like that? Anything about which you're urgent, anything about which you're desperate, anything about which you're eager, let me tell you this, listen, if you're urgent about it, there's a big chance God is too. If you're eager about it, I believe God is too. If you're desperate about it, you can talk to a God who is desperate as well to come through with every need that you've got as you cry out to Him. So let's take a moment to pray about it. Would you do that? But just give it to Him. You take a moment in your silence to turn it over to the Lord and say yes to Him and bow it all to Him. Maybe it's a pain of guilt. You still hadn't got past it and you're miserable and tired of it. It could be a future collision with someone. Because you have to make a decision. You know what you need to do. And some people aren't going to be happy with it. It may be a long-standing disappointment and frustration that you just can't change. God never intended for you to live without peace. It may not change, but you can still have peace and strength. 